Welcome to the Hall of Tyrannus podcast. I'm Eric. This is Jim. And I'm Mark. And today our focus is going to be on the life of Jacob. Jacob being, as I always remember him, the third in the listed patriarchs when God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's the one that came out of his mother's womb, clinging to his brother's ankle, his twin brother Esau, and he is the son of Isaac. What uh, What do you got, Jim? How would you start off uh, describing Jacob? Well, I think you would first have to look at what Paul says in Romans where God said, for I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. I think that's an important statement in the Bible in that God has chosen one of the brothers over the other, um, Esau being the oldest one. And so for me, it's like, well, why would God choose Jacob over Esau? I mean, there had to be something special about Jacob, right? I mean, logic would say that. Oh, there's definitely special things about him. That is true. And after reading the story of Jacob and going through it yet again, still don't know why God chose Jacob other than that's who God chose. Yeah, and you know, that's something I thought about a lot was God does choose Jacob over Esau, and I wonder if that has something to do with, well, first off, election. I'm sure Mark would love to get into that. But also the concept that Esau despised his birthright. And so that obviously comes later. That comes later down the line. But God obviously being in, you know, that omnipresent, omniscient state there, you know, even from the womb, he could, he knows that Esau will despise his birthright and sell it for a bowl of soup, you know, and we see in the Old Testament that, there's a lot of emphasis put on being the firstborn, and Esau is the firstborn. There's a lot of emphasis put on it, but it's not a it's not a God thing. God never intended that. That is a man made structure. There's nowhere in the Bible where God says, "Hey, the first has to be more special or anything." Well, so in uh, I believe it's Deuteronomy where God talks about the firstborn is you know belongs to the Lord. That doesn't have anything to do with it. Well, I see. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. But the structure in regards to we give all the belongings to the eldest, the whole structure, like all of that around that. Yes, I know what you're that saying. Portion, that portion does not have any... We overemphasize that. Gotcha. Is okay. what I'm really trying to say. Biblically, that is a, a whole man construct on that regard. So on the the oldest getting... The oldest all kid. The all of the everything. And, they get the possessions. Yeah. They get the pizzazz that goes along with it. Yeah, but... Keep in mind, they also get the responsibility because they are they are responsible for the family. I mean, they take over making sure that little Johnny has, you know, his little brother has what he needs and that type of thing as well. So, you know, looking at it, yeah, you get a lot of stuff, but there's also a lot of responsibility that comes with that, at least during that time as well. Yeah, but again, I still, when you go through the, the entirety of the Bible, you do see, like you did say, you know, there has a blessing on the oldest but the rest of the stuff was a construct by man so do you think that because god loved jacob and hated esau that that is why jacob was able to steal his father's blessing no. from esau no no it's because that's how god wanted it and that's exactly how the, both the people wanted it he was conniving god uses man's wicked actions all the time to do exactly what he wants he doesn't want them to do evil they happen to line up with perfect harmony. Yeah. So, so to you know, maybe maybe go into a little more description here too, what we're talking about when Isaac says, you know, tells Esau to go out and hunt him game. Esau was the the hunter, you know, he'd go out, catch game, as the Bible says that Isaac loved to eat of 
his game that he would catch. And so he sends Esau out to get it, to cook him food that he enjoys so that he could give his son his blessing. And Jacob's mother, essentially, goes out, cooks, is it a lamb or a sheep? Do you guys remember? I thought it was a goat. It might be a goat, yeah. Because she used the fur afterwards on the skin. Yeah, Jim's going to look that up for us. Of course. <laughs> so she Lamb gets... soft goat is, is stiff and bristly hair. So I was pretty sure, based on that, it was goat. Okay. So yeah, so he she takes some of the hair from the goat and puts it on Isaac because he was smooth and didn't have hair. And basically... Isaac robbed, robbed, well, yeah, he robbed Esau with blessing, but he, uh, he deceives essentially his father and makes his father think that he's Esau bringing game. Well, he does, but there is a factor there that I think we need to keep in mind. And I think is part of, or explains some of Jacob's personality in that he is following the instructions of his mom. It's not like he came to mom and said, Hey mom, let's do this. It's actually Rebecca going to Jacob and saying, let's do this. And I also think there's something else that we need to keep in mind in this discussion on this particular area is that we're not talking about kids like 18, 19 years old. The chapter before, it speaks of Esau being 40 years old. So yeah, uh, Esau's already married at this time? Yes, he has a wife, yeah. but it literally mentions him being 40 years old. These are middle-aged, what we would call middle-aged men now, who we would expect a little bit more maturity from doing these types of activity. And so that, you know, that's not saying a whole lot for Jacob at this point. I don't have a lot to say good about Jacob at any point until much later in his life. I think although he rightly desired the the birthright, his his means were absolutely detestable. And so many times we see in the Bible where it, you know, you have the whole prescriptive versus descriptive. You know, clearly this is just describing a man's action and not something to be emulated because it's absolutely detestable and wicked. He takes advantage of his brother and his brother's down. You know, his brother comes in about to starve to death. He's like, hey... I just need something to eat. And he's like, oh, well, you know, give me the namesake here. You know, you can have this meal. And he's like, oh, so he's like already down the dumps. And then his dad is about to die. And he's like, well, let me go steal this from this old man, too, and take advantage of him. Seems seems like a pretty not cool dude in my, my view. Selling the birthright, though, as, you know, Esau comes in and he says he's about to starve. And he's like, well, what goes the birthright for me if I'm dead? I think he's been a little overdramatic. Honestly, honestly, I'm, I look at this, look at the whole Esau thing. I think that has a, a massive importance in regards to our flesh. We do this all the time. We sell our flesh, you know, we sell our, our soul for the flesh all the time. This goes from pot of porridge to pornography to whatever you want to say. People do it all the time. They sell their soul all the time for fleshly desires. And that's all that is seen here. And we're all the time overly dramatic about it, you know? That's, that, so that's not that's un, true. Yeah. It's not un... I, I just want to make sure that, I mean, like, when Esau says that he's going to starve and die, he's full of crap. Because, look, his mom later on... I'm sure he's probably, on, probably pretty, pretty weak. And... His mom later on sends Isaac out, or sends, a, I'm sorry, Jacob out, and gets a goat and cooks it right then. I mean, why couldn't he go out there, grab a goat, and cook it? You know, instead he's like, oh, no, there's soup right there on the stove. So, and, you know, like you were saying, he's just like, I'm just going to give up my birthright here for a bowl of that soup. So I don't have to go do any work and get my own food. Well, I think later on, though, I, th I think we may have an answer to this question in that when Jacob does cheat 
Esau out of the blessing, which is a big deal to the point where Esau is planning to kill Jacob. Jacob flees, and, and then later on we see that he's afraid to come back. To me, that tells me that we know that Esau is a hunter. He's a manly man. He's out there doing, doing some physical work. Jacob, meanwhile, we see him cooking in the kitchen. Yeah. I would imagine that Esau is probably a little bit stronger than Jacob, probably a little bit more fit than Jacob. And so when we see them at, with the soup, okay, unless God tells us that he detested his birthright. In my mind, if I was Esau, I would be thinking, okay, I'll give him my birthright, then beat it out of you when it's time for me to take it, because I'm, I'm just going to physically take it from you. And see, I, I don't know if I would have ever personally would have thought of it as detesting the birthright, but more as a, I didn't ever, I would have imagined that he probably wasn't taking the situation very serious. And I think that's more kind of like where you're going with. Well, it does say there, in verse 34, chapter Genesis 25, the last sentence there in verse 34, thus Esau despised his birthright. You know, and that's that's a statement made yeah, in the okay. scriptures. You're right, you're right, you're right. Now, how does that correlate from what we're talking about here, a statement in the Bible that's a descriptive statement compared to, say, in other parts of the Bible where a prophet or somebody says, or even God himself literally speaks, like we see in Job, or like, you know, like we see in like Isaiah, you know, we're, you know, it's like, thus says the Lord kind of stuff. You know, those are obviously the words of God, specifically what he's saying. Scripture is breathed out from God. We know that. Yeah. So does this fall under the same category here as this descriptive part here, that last sentence? Well, first off, I mean, this is one of those texts that I probably just was like, oh, end of chapter, move on to the next. So I didn't pay that clearly attention to it, knowing I've heard 100,000 people say he despised his birthright. I, I guess I have to take it for a face value, but I, I'm curious in regards to the translation. We'll have New American Standard, and it says... I'm jumping through a bunch, yeah. Thus Esau same despised thing. his birthright. I, I'm like you, Mark. I kind of read that chapter and that sentence I'm stopping I'm thinking you know I'm not expecting that sentence to be at the end of the chapter yeah but I will say this and again I'm, I'm going to move forward through the story because I think God kind of gives us some clues to it is that you know Esau does marry a woman from Canaan part of the Canaanites which Isaac and Rebecca hated and and not to mention in there too it also says because he married the daughter of Elon the Hittite and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebecca. And so I'm thinking that when it talks about his birthright, it may be his spiritual birthright. It may be the fact that he's born in the lineage of Abraham and Isaac. And with that, and with God being there and his hand being upon them, life is a lot different than what the Hittites are living. Life's a lot different than what others around him are, are living. And so he may not, that may be what it's referencing. He may not want to live in that lifestyle, but he wants to be like the Hittites. He wants to have those pleasures like the Hittites and do the things that they do at that point. Because when you say that you hate your birthright, I can't imagine that he hated being as wealthy as he probably was because everything that Abraham had was, was handed down to Isaac. So it wasn't like he was living like a pauper. He had great wealth. He wasn't in need of anything many servants. So I, I I don't believe he hated that part or aspect of life. I don't know. It doesn't seem to, and I'm not saying it's wrong. <laughs> Clearly it's not wrong, okay? But what I'm saying is it doesn't seem to connect the dots of my brain. And pretty much like everything we're going to go through here, the error in, the error of what we would say here or what we would assume or teach or what else 
out of the Bible, the error would be coming from us, not the text. <laughs> Amen, brother. So, you know, it's funny because, like, I've read this repeatedly, repeatedly, Genesis. I have always been like, where does everybody get that he despises his birthright? Um, maybe the text right there, but, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. But, to, again, it does not seem to jive with the rest of it with me because maybe I'm coming up from, through my, my perspective, too. And God knows what's in someone's heart versus what we do. You know what I mean? So we're looking at it from our perspective. And if we were Esau and then God's like, no, no, he just despised that birthright. There's probably more that we could get from it by looking at Romans nine. So yeah, we can jump into Romans nine at verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born, referring to Esau and Jacob and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And who calls. That would be God who right. calls. It says, it was said to her, referring to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so, Mark, I'm going to go back to to the fact that Esau despised his his birthright. I'm thinking... Now, I could be totally wrong, but I'm thinking that there's a connection between the two. So you're thinking because he hated his birthright, God says, I don't choose you. No, what I'm saying is that God didn't choose Esau, but Esau despised his birthright. He despised the fact that he came from a lineage that God had his hand specifically on. Thus, his marrying of the Hittite woman, right? Yes. Is that what you're... Yes, that he wanted nothing to do with God and that part of his birthright. So that would be, I would see that looking at it from taking away the earthly perspective, okay? So when we're talking sin and justification, I would say yes to that automatically. We're wicked, sinful people from birth. And for him to be despising of these things, for him to be feeding his flesh with the soup, I guess in one aspect, I kind of feel like that's a given. They kind of go together. So. I would go along with that, or I don't know how to best word what I'm trying to say, but I could I could agree in that regard. Hebrews 12. We can go there. Would you like me to read it? Okay, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Where are you at? Uh, Hebrews 12, 16. So how does being sexually immoral, I can see how unholy would link to like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Well, well, let's look at the whole context instead of just touching it. So I would do. You, I, I was gonna. I wanted to read the, the the next verse there. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So you, go ahead, Mark. No, I wanted. I wanted to look a little further back, trying to find where. Well, I mean, just looking at at what's being said here. For you know that even afterwards, after he sold his birthright. When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So when he, when we see him sell the birthright, he has no value of it. He sees no need for it. Yes. And then we come to the part where the rubber meets the road when it comes to the blessing. He made a deal with Jacob. Okay, what Jacob did was evil. What Rebekah told him to do was evil. But God said, you made a deal. With Jacob, that deal is going through. There's no turning back. It's gone. It's done. It's finished. Now, God did not set up a situation where sin and all that happened. 
but he did allow it to happen so that that deal can be completed. The deal of Jacob taking Esau's blessing from his father. Right, and the birthright. Under the context here that God says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Yes. So he allows the sin to occur where Jacob takes, buys, we'll say buys his brother's birthright, and then deceives his father to get his blessing while his brother is out hunting. I was going to say, sorry. Go ahead. I personally see a bigger picture in the whole matter. And we're, we're looking at people, and we need to be looking at God in the whole context. You know, the, the focus is not the people. The focus is God. And his decision-making is simply based upon his decision-making. And he chooses who he chooses, and he does not choose who he does not choose. For afterwards, he desired to inherit the blessing, and he was rejected. You know, I think the bigger perspective that we see here is if God says yes, it's a yes. If God says no, it's a no. I understand his his actions. There is recourse for our actions. That's an absolute thing we see here, too. However, God shows mercy on who he shows mercy and God judges rightly those who he judges in my perspective i'd be like yeah esau seems like the dude he seems like he's trying to take care of his family you know i don't know his heart but god chooses who he chooses all the time and i don't know i know the heart plays a matter in the long term but prior to why why like god's choosing where does the heart matter meaning god chose jacob and esau before they were born their heart was not determined in any fashion at that point he purposely chose Jacob and Esau as the guideline and instruction for election and salvation because he couldn't use Isaac and Ishmael because one's of the promise and the other one's not. Both of these guys were of the promise. And based upon what he was talking about earlier is the blessing biblically goes to the firstborn and inherently or inherence wise goes to the firstborn in man's law. Okay, God says, no, I'm changing all that up. We're going to flip that that all around. I'm choosing the second, not the first. You know, just because he was born first does not mean that it has the ultimate matter here. I am the ultimate decision-making and reason for salvation. So when we're looking at that perspective, I think think we're really looking at the wrong thing because we're trying to figure out somehow in man what happened, and it was God that happened in the thing. Oh, I totally agree with you, and I think that... By discussing it in this way, we we see we see something that's bigger than I can I can describe. God is in total authority. God is in control. Control. He has he has written the script. He controls every action that there that there is. Nothing happens without his permission. This is all a part of his plan for his glory and his honor. And somehow, being God, he's able to do this, working through the hearts of men, which makes it even more astounding, spectacular, and awe of how he does this. Because not only does he describe, this is what I did, this is how I did it. And we see the example of Esau giving up that from himself, giving it up. So God is working to the point where Esau didn't even want it, which is amazing how that works out. But man, yes, I agree. I agree. Uh, But I think in general, we see through the text of the Bible that man... Man freely sins. I think there's far more context of free will in the area of our sin than the process of salvation. You want to talk free will? Fine. Yeah, we we select all the sins because we have responsibility for all the sin in our life. 
but we don't freely choose God because God chooses us alone, as we see here. But, but yeah, in regards to what I'm, I would say, yes, absolutely. He despised it, and God didn't have to do that part. So it's like the whole thing, like no man's banging on the doors of heaven saying, let me in. People are freely and rushing, you know, to go the complete opposite way from the Lord all the time. And you were saying something about earlier in uh, verse 16 that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, like how those would connect. Is that what you were asking? Yeah, I, yeah, I kind of touched on that. Yeah. So the the sexually immoral, the same reason why I even like went to the whole pornography things is like, I cannot think of what scripture, literally when I was reading about Esau in the flesh, there's a thing from Matthew Henry it says, gratifying the sensual appetite ruins thousands of precious souls. Literally, that is exactly what Esau did there. He gratified by eating that food, his sensual appetite, his appetite. This is what my flesh wants. I'm giving to it. You know, the body is for the flesh. You know, the Bible talks about as how people look at it, like the body is for the flesh, blah, 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 blah. We just went through that in the Corinthians at Mm -hmm. church. And the perspective was wrong. They're saying like, hey, we should be able to freely do what we want to do with this body and live how we want to live. And that's exactly what we see with Esau here. He's trying to go through that process. You know, yes, we're talking about the stomach and the other one's talking about reproductive organs, but you know, it's the same process mentally. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And that has a resounding conversation that could go on well beyond this. But I think in the context of what they're, how they're saying to live as Christians in Hebrew, Hebrews 12 here, you know, how we should be acting, you know, he says, don't let anybody become sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So he's like, don't let these people use their bodies and act in this kind of manner, gratifying the flesh or sensual appetite. Absolutely, because we have to remember Esau's wife was a Hittite. Yeah, I was about to just bring that up again, too. Even in verse 46 of 27 in Genesis, then Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. I believe she's talking about Esau's wives here, or wife. I think he had, I think he had two, actually. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Exactly like you're saying that, you know, also falls under the unholy and sexually immoral aspect that Mark's talking about that Esau is, because he doesn't care. He doesn't care that he's not supposed to marry and lay with one of these Hittite women. Like you were like us with pornography. We just we make that choice. I want what makes me happy. Yeah. And that's and, what, that's what Esau's doing. forget everybody doing. else. Yeah. And that's what Esau's doing there. So he's just... Wants what wants whatever makes him happy, you know. So after all of this, of course, Jacob runs away. Rebecca sends him off to his uncle Laban, yeah. and which uh, is weird enough in myself. I'm struggling to pull that together, you know. Like, hey, you need a wife? Here's my uncle. Go, go marry your cousin. Go, go get you one of your. <laughs> that's cousins. My, that's your yeah. job. You marry my cousin. I'll stay uh, away yeah. from cousin. Yeah, yeah. I did. I did marry your cousin, didn't I? Not my cousin. I did not marry my cousin. No, you married, I married my Mark's cousin. cousin. Mark and I are not related by marriage now. We yeah by marriage now we are yeah. 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 Now can I uh, interject here because I think now we're looking at Laban. I think we're. We're starting to see where this deceptive trait that Jacob has is coming from, uh, which was something that was like, wow. Because we first see Rebecca, who masterminds this plan, right, to deceive Isaac, her husband, okay? And then we go and we see Laman, who later on pulls a fast one on Jacob. 
and I'm I'm thinking that this trait is coming from mom's side of the family here. I see where you're going, and I I get that thing, but at the same time, his father was, his grandfather did it. You know what I'm trying to say? Realistically, just human nature. We are wicked. We are dreadfully wicked. But do I think the skillfully, tactful, smooth way to, you know, be deceiving? Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Can be like, hey, let me teach you my way, son. You know? Yeah. They were definitely cohorting together and doing some awful. And I think it also explains, because, I mean, looking at when he goes to his uncle's house, and he works those seven years. Keep in mind, he's probably getting close to being 47 years old by the time he's finished. I, 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 again, I think sometimes we think he's like 25, 30, and he's not. He's like 47, 48 years old. And uncle saying, psych, you're not getting Rachel, you're getting Leah, and you got to work another seven years. His response to it, because I'm, you know... My wife and I were talking about this, and I said, if I went to work seven years for you and I got somebody else, we're having a little talk with Uncle. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I, this isn't what I agreed with. You can't imagine how ugly she had to be, too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did she have like another nose on her forehead or something? Like, I mean, what? Poor lady. But his response know. isn't, let's talk about this, Uncle. It's, okay, I'll work another seven years. It's almost like, okay, Uncle, you got me. I'll work another seven years, and then I'll take Rachel. So she must have been really hot. Then I was about to say that, too. Can we also talk about how hot Rachel had to be then? I mean, like, top of the line, downright beautiful to spend 14 years working just for this woman. His cousin. But, so that's, you know, running in the family there. She might have had all her teeth or something. (laughs) No. She wasn't. I mean, I don't know what the standards were then, you know? She wasn't from some parts of town around here, that's for sure, huh? But just to kind of back up a little bit, and I apologize, I know you want to go down this road, but there is something that happens that kind of caught me off guard, and that is after this trickery, Esau goes to Ishmael, and he marries a daughter of Ishmael after all this happens. So, And, and my question is, what was Esau trying to communicate or trying to do at that moment? You want to go through who Ishmael is and uh, why it, that's significant? Well, Ishmael is Isaac's brother. Ishmael was Abraham trying to fulfill the promise that God had given to him on his own. And that went really bad really quick. Isaac was the promise of God, and Ishmael was of the flesh. Isaac was of the spirit, Ishmael of the flesh. After Jacob steals the blessing, he takes a powder for a minute so that Esau can't find him. But then it says that Esau went to Ishmael and married one of Ishmael's daughters for his wife. And I'm trying to find... So would Ishmael's daughter, would that have been Esau's cousin? That would have been Esau's cousin, yes. (laughs) It's just, there's all kinds of stuff running in this family. You know, we can talk about this a little more later. These are the people that God chose. So (laughs) it goes to show you we're all, like, it doesn't matter who God chooses, we're all a mess. You know, you would think God would choose, like, somebody that doesn't have all these issues, but we all do. We all have sin. We're all falling short of the glory of God. So no matter who God chooses, they're not perfect. He redeems, he justifies, he restores. Yeah. And that is the one thing that you see with Jacob's life after you get through the mess and the murk at the beginning of the story. You know, you see where God restores, you know, or redeems his family. 
and and makes him a blessing instead of a curse. And obviously God was was working things or deciding things before his birth or creation. However, that's very much the case. God takes broken, wicked beings and redeems them. You were talking about how, you know, God redeems Jacob and he is essentially going, he, he blesses Jacob big time here after he's worked his 14 years and he's got both uh, Rachel and Leah as his wives. They've both had born children for him, sons at that. We see that every time Laban says, hey, the spotted one, the, any yep. any spotted lambs Goat. will be your, yeah. goats will be yours and they all start boring spotted ones so he says well not the spotted ones but the striped ones and so all the ones that are born are striped when i was reading it i noticed that jacob does this weird thing where he puts like certain kinds of sticks near them whenever they're mating i um, didn't get that too yeah i i think jacob is i don't know i i don't know what the deal is there but later on jacob tells his wives God is the one that makes them be born spotted, striped, whatever it is that he's supposed to. He describes it as uh, their father has changed his wages ten times. And we'll jump into verse 8 of chapter 31, Genesis. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. I don't know what the deal is with the sticks, but I do know that right there, Jacob says himself that he didn't go, hey, I put these sticks down and I made sure that I got all this, you know, livestock and everything. No, he tells his wives that God is blessing him, that God is making sure that these offspring of the, these different livestock are what Laban says his wages will be. So, and that's right around the time that he's about to leave Laban, and Laban is just constantly deceiving him yet still, trying to change his wages. He's already tricked him into marrying his, his ugly daughter, and then he had to give him his hot daughter. Yeah, is, there, is there a different way I should describe that, Jim? No, it just, <laughs> it kind of hit me funny, that's all. Yeah, now Laban is continuously deceiving him and really just outright trying to rob him, essentially. I'm trying to rob him of his labor and his time by changing his wages to be what Laban thinks will, will be pretty much nothing. And from there, God tells him to head back home and he takes everything that he's accumulated with him. So like Mark was saying, you know, he ends up blessing him and redeeming him as it is. It makes him essentially very wealthy. Still makes no sense to me. I, I mean, the sticks. No, oh. pretty much, pretty <laughs> much everything, you know, from 25 up to this point, from, from chapter 25 to this point. I don't, I don't understand why God has decided to choose me. And when I read these stories, there's rarely through the Bible do I read somebody be like, this dude, this dude is the Jew. You know, there's a few prophets that I'm like, man, I get it. Get why God chose this one. This one's like rocking. But most of the time I get through people like this and I'm like, it's a good thing you choose because I would have picked a different person, you know? <laughs> yeah, Jacob's not making my top 10 list. No, he's really not. I really struggle. I really struggle because like when I think about Jacob, I don't think of it like, oh, Israel, you know, like his name turned to Israel and the whole nation's built around him. That's not how I think of the guy. I think of this slime ball that is... Yeah, I have ways to word how he would do things. You know, like in my notes, I put Jacob's actions towards his brother is no different than the guy that takes advantage of a girl at a college party, finds him at their worst, and does what he needs to do. That's how I see this guy. You know, I think of this guy as a pretty low-down, dirty dude. And 
this guy, God, ends up holding in a fashion. And I think that's a problem. I think we're looking at it more out of our perspective and our sight. You know, what is this guy's worth? This guy's worth nothing. It's God who creates the value and the worth of us. End of story. Well, the Bible says that God has no respecter of men. And he says he will show mercy to whom he shows mercy to. And Jacob's the perfect example of that because his whole life is like a prolonged soap opera where if it was happening today, the tabloids and ETV and, I mean, it would just be one thing after another after another. He, it would just be incredible. Difference is they would glorify him in his sin. The, the thing that amazes me is that after the dream that he has of the, of the latter and wrestling with God, he goes back to doing what he was doing before. I mean, we see how he treats Rachel and how he gets upset that she hasn't bore him a son. And he does the same thing that his grandfather did to take her, her handmaiden. And then he takes Leah's handmaiden. I'm thinking, this is a mess. I mean, if we were to look at it from our perspective, this is an absolute mess. And yet this is the person that God has chosen to show mercy to. And I think Part of the reason why he did that was to say, your actions do not dictate what I'm going to do. It's not what you do. It's what I choose. And again, that should resoundingly scream for, for salvation. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, you know, somehow we do this separation of this, you know, free will. You know, we start adding in that in there somewhere and... You know, I think it gets to be messy. We do we do not freely choose God. God chooses us, period. You know, we wouldn't be able to make it in. We wouldn't be able to somehow on our merit. How does he justify the things that he has done? If he's supposed to justify it to God. Hey, God, you know that thing that we're supposed to do? I went ahead and stole that. Oh, okay. Well, we're all good now. Give me some, you know, give me a camel. Give me a couple goats. Like where, where at what point is, is he going to pay for that? What action was he going to do? Oh, you know, 14 years, you worked that off. That was a good job. High five, buddy. You worked for your, you know, deceitful uncle, you know. Good enough. Yeah, now you get to be in our club. No, we're wicked. We can't pay it off. We can't do enough for it. We can't ask sorry enough. He chooses us. I mean, the promise was already given before he was even born. His mom knew that. I still don't understand. Like, again, it's so funny that we see this, too. But that was mentioned, you know, with Abraham, you know, trying to do a process in the flesh, you know, like his mom, Rachel, just did the same thing there as like, hey, let's expedite this thing that God has promised us. And let's let's let you steal this. Like, why? Like, why not? Like, hey, you have this promise. Let's just let's let's let it roll out. Let's let it pan out. But again, I think it's God allows these things to happen. And he allows the wicked actions of man to show his sovereignty beyond us. Does it make sense? Oh, totally. And the other thing that amazes me is, you know, Abraham is Jacob's grandfather. So it's not like we've gone hundreds of years and it happens again. Yeah. It's not even, I mean, did Jake, Jacob probably knew Abraham? Did Abraham live long enough to see Jacob? It's that same idea. Like I have heard not too long ago that it, from a economist, he's, you know, passed, you know, not too long ago, but he said it takes two decades for people to repeat the same failures as the generations before. So two decades. So every 20 years, we're looking at problems. So you look at the, the bubble in 2008, you look at the problems in 85, you look at the problems. We had a little stretch. Ooh, it was pretty good there from like, you know, 
40s to the you know 70s ish but that was the same problems that happened in the 20s you know and you keep going on like we consistently fail i read my bible god restores his people this king is just blah 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 turn the page everyone screwed it up we are so quick to screw things up as people i'm surprised it took that many generations yeah i I was reading actually second chronicles recently and one of the main things I noticed is that the high places of Baal and the ashram are torn down, like you just said, like every 20 to 40 years. It's like, literally, there had to be a time where it was built again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they didn't even really make it that long, Yep. you know, because to tear them down again, they have to be put up again. And they're not putting them up one day and tearing them down the next. And just like you were saying, turn the page and it's... This king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and this one did what was righteous in the sight of the Lord. You know, it just goes back and forth. And I guess we never learn our lesson. I would like to think as we get older, we start to refine them a little bit better, (laughs) but we still continue to fail and be wicked in sin. No, I think that, honestly, if if we're to be honest, and looking at Jacob, I think it would be tough for us not to be honest, is that we're, as humans, we are no better than the people during the day of Noah, unless God does something within us. God's hand has to be upon mankind, or it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. It's going to be like it was in Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. That is our natural tendency. That is what human beings are. Yeah, we're wicked. And that's, I'm going to have to run with, you know, the, the, the tulip here, you know, total depravity, buddy. Total depravity all day long. There's no way, there's no way you can read the Bible from beginning to end with me or to me, and then I'm going to be like, yeah, I totally see Well, we're not wicked from birth. It does, it's no, you know, I've never seen it in life, you know, never have I taught my children, oh, you have to be selfish. You have to want to hurt somebody. They, they pick up out on their own. My kids have never, ever seen me strike my wife, never seen me strike them except for a spanking. But well before I spanked them, they were hitting each other. So it's not, it's not something you have to teach somebody. This is, this is in us. From birth. You you mentioned TULIP. Yeah. You want to go over that? The TULIP is an acronym uh, for for Calvinism, which our church that we go to, I personally, um, we consider myself a Calvinist per the term to simplify the conversation of where I look at the doctrines of grace. I would rather refer to them as doctrines of grace, but we use this acronym. I think it should be TULIPs or start with an S because I do believe sovereignty is well overlooked in this. But the perspective is it was created between two men. One had a teaching, taught, wrote books. That was uh, John Calvin, and then Joseph Arminius was teaching against it. So he wrote these things in direct opposition to Calvin's teaching. Calvin, you know, was not even a Calvinist. He was just teaching what he was reading from the Bible, and we would agree with him. So within the tulip, or the five points of Calvinism, T stands for total depravity. Every man is wicked from birth. U would be unconditional election. There's by no condition. Man does not create how they have salvation, why God would choose them. And anybody that has a problem with the idea of God choosing or not choosing, we would simply just say, we talk about the Jewish people all the time as God's chosen people. And we don't have a problem saying that, but when we say Christians are chosen, then we're like, whoa, whoa, you can't go there now. But 
I, I digress. Uh, L stands for limited atonement, meaning only some have salvation, which I don't care if you're a Calvinist or an Arminianist, your perspective would be only some receive salvation and are atoned for their sin. I is irresistible grace, meaning that God will make himself so irresistible to you in the process of wooing you to come to him that you will not be able to resist it. And I would say that that's a guaranteed perspective also because we read the Bible and we will agree as Christians that the Bible says that we are blind, dead, and lost. And that wooing process or that irresistible grace is God drawing and bringing life into a dead person. And then the last one is P, perseverance of the saints or per preservation of the saints will be said. This one's the fun one also. They're all really fun points because people like to fight them. But this one gets fun because that's where we get the once saved, always saved. And I would have to strongly say that God would hold his people and preserve his people, those who are actually his people, simply on the basis of, yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's not going to say, oh, look at this wicked, sinful man. Oh, I decided I don't want him. Because God is the same today, tomorrow, and always. It's not like he's deciding like one way he's going to decide a decision and then he's going to change his mind. He's not at any point changed his mind. You know, he's regretted creating people. You know, people like that. Well, he, did the... he didn't change his mind. He said, I regretted making these things. They're wicked. They're horrible. But he continued on and he had a process to redeem them and create, you know, for salvation. You know, once saved, always saved is an extremely oversimplification of a deeper process of what God does, he does complete. And he preserves us and keeps us in the long term. It's not like we're going to slip out of his fingers somehow. So where's that? Well, I would have to support, and I think Jacob supports that 100%. The Bible says we're adopted into the family of God. And once you're adopted, you're adopted, especially in the Jewish history. Once you adopted somebody, that was it. He was part of your family. It wasn't like you could like, change your mind. And so it's interesting that God chooses that, that term when he talks about his children and being adopted into the family of God. To further your point on that, and I think Jacob does throughout the whole story of Jacob, I can't think of anywhere where I'd go, that is the guy that I, yeah, no, I don't know. He's kind of questionable throughout his whole life to the point where if he lived today, Honestly, how many people do you think would say, yeah, that's a saved guy right there? Definitely wouldn't be the ethics and compliance officer at my, my place of work. You know? And yet God says, later on, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Equally baffling is where I was after, again, I, I read the Bible repeatedly, and everybody's like, oh, every time I read it, I see something new. Sometimes it's simply like the verse that was right in front of my face the whole time earlier. But, you know, when someone pointed out, when I'm reading Corinthians, go through the book of Corinthians, and it, someone pointed out, you realize this thing starts with brothers. Follow, like, fellow believers, fellow Christians. Like, I'm reading the whole book, and I'm, like, thinking, like, this is a rod against the wicked. This is talking to other believers. So, like, in that same manner, you know, like, Jacob falls into that category. And I'm sure I could probably meet a hundred other Christians that would look at me and say, hey, Mark is like Jacob. Mark is like the people in the book of Corinthians, which I hope they don't, okay? I'm not, I, I married my wife, not my mom, okay? You know, we got a whole lot more to go there, but yeah. I had a friend of mine back when I first became a Christian, 
and every time we talked about things that were going on in my life, constantly going back to First Corinthians. I was like, "Why well, I got some serious problems right here, same as the <laughs> same as these guys over here in Corinthians, you know, and I don't, I don't remember how old was I, 20, 21, 22, I guess, when I became a Christian. I think that's how old I was when I started going to your Bible study, Mark. That's, that's, a, that's a crazy thought. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. And that was over 10 years ago, so... But wow. yeah, there was some times where it was just like constantly in First Corinthians. So when you're like, these are brothers sitting right across from you, man. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I guess the part that that gets me is this this idea that we see in our society today, where you got to make yourself better, make yourself better, make yourself better, earn it, earn it, earn it. You look at Jacob, you look at Samson, you look at Moses, you look at David. Okay, I I'm not seeing <laughs> I'm not seeing them make themselves better, better than being able to present themselves to God. I don't. It's kind of funny you even say that, though. Literally, the conversation of morals never showed up until we get to Moses. Then then morals show up, okay, in the law. And then we see, when we get to the New Testament, oh, by the way, God made the law not as a you know checklist. This was to increase your trespasses. This is for you to know how absolutely wicked you are and why you are desperately in need of a savior. We got this crazy thing nowadays where the me too movement thing, and I'm not trying to mock it. You know, anybody who has ever had something done bad to him, not cool. You know what I mean? It's beyond not cool is wicked. But when you go through like that whole process there, we have this level of morality nowadays that on one side, we say, this is what morality looks like. And then on the same side, people will be like, but we don't have to abide by it. Unless it's you. As long as it's not me, it's you can't do these things, but I can. And it's from every perspective. It seems like everybody holds that key of, you can't do this. I mean, I can, but you can't. And the thing is, is a Christian's view should be, we do these things. We should not do these things. God says not to do these things. They deserve death. Not going to sugarcoat it. It's not like they deserve a slap on the wrist. They don't deserve, they deserve death. But Christ pays that price for those who believe. Fundamentally, it should change how we do things. Ultimately, he does that work, you know, and there's things in my life that, you know, I regret that I've done and said or whatever, you know, and various levels of how we want to classify sin, you know, at the same time, like I'm extremely thankful, pleased and gracious that I have a savior who, you know, has taken those things. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's not about us getting better because we're not, we're just not. I mean, Jacob saw, saw God with the latter, wrestled with God, before and after, it's the same. And he experienced God. Now, that being said, nowadays there's this whole new wave. It's not new at all because there's a whole term for it. But there's this whole new wave of people taking what they perceive as grace and continue on sinning at the same time. I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of what it's called. It goes along with the Arianism, the whole, you know, I'm not talking about white supremacy, Arianism. Universalism? Uh, no, no, not even universalism. But basically, where you continue to sin, you don't really see the sin as a sin. We're free to sin, is how people look at it, which is an absolute lie. The Bible even tells us, you know, do we continue on sinning that grace may abound more? No, is what it says. Clearly says, absolutely not. So that being said, do we strive for change? Do we want to do better as Christians? Absolutely. Do we work towards it? Absolutely. And we have a, a, a guideline and a goal and an understanding of what that looks like through Christ and even through the law. We, you know, we have different portions of the law. There's, you know, civil, moral, 
and um, ceremonial. And when we look at the moral law, we know what God sees as what's moral and what's not. We see what is how to treat people in a civil manner, you know, like I do something, you know, I wreck your, I wreck my car into yours and I pay you back for it because that's right. You know, we get these things, but we know that we're never, no one's going to make an A plus on everything. No one's going to get them all right. And failing one of them makes us fail altogether. My greater point in this is, you know, we don't continue to keep sinning. Even I just want to clarify because so many people nowadays would be like, no, 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 that's that's cool. I'm glad that I don't have to do anything moral to be a Christian. You're not going to earn your salvation. We're talking about about salvation on that conversation. You know, we don't earn our salvation with morality, but we strive for morality in the in our walk as a Christian. That would be where the word sanctification comes into play, and we grow and we we change. We do, and and I would like to add to the point that. We do that not because of our own actions, but because of the work that Christ, Christ has done in us. Absolutely. You know, Jesus Christ promises that he will complete the work that he has started within us. Perseverance of the saints. Exactly. Yeah, baby. And, and so seeing like Jacob, Esau, Abraham, Moses, David, I mean, I can, the list goes on and on. Peter, the analogy I'm going to use, it's like if you put a, a dog in a room and there's a stack of meat and a stack of lettuce, okay? I would say out of 100 times, the dog's probably going to the meat 100 times, okay? That's what we are with sin. So how do you get that dog to go to the lettuce? Take away the meat. <laughs> That's the only way you can. Yeah. Or the dog has to be changed. It can't be a dog. It has to be something different. And so, you know, when I read the story, I look at Jacob, and I'm like, you know what? I desire this because of the desire that God's, God's put in my heart. Otherwise, I wouldn't desire it it makes me realize that I have to be more reliant on God to make those changes and submit totally to him my Absolutely. life and lay, try to lay down my will as much as I possibly can so that he will make the changes in me so that I can do those things. Because the only way that you can have a dog in the room to not go to the meat is he has to be changed into a rabbit. Then he'll go to the lettuce. So that'll do it for our time today, guys. Does anyone have any closing remarks? Uh, this is Jim. Just glad that God is on his throne. This is Mark. I have nothing else to add. We'll catch you guys next time on the Hall of Tyrannus podcast. Mm-hmm.